You are listening to season four of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast, a 10 part series in which hardware wallet makers and breakers get interviewed. Before I introduce this episode's guests, let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020, and for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage, and in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of this show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Hi there, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad, and my guest today is Lazy Ninja, who is a hacker of hardware wallets, who gets a lot of acknowledgement from big companies which produce hardware wallets. And very recently, he was able to find vulnerabilities in the cold card and in the Bitbox O2. And I, I think also the Trezor, but I'm not 100% sure. So in this regard, I think he's a very valuable individual who makes hardware wallets more secure for all of us. And the fact that he finds issues and reports them for a bounty means that 
we all get a lot more security from software updates from the companies. He could easily chase owners of hardware wallets and try to steal their Bitcoins, but he's a very nice guy and he will not do that. So hello, Mr. Lazy Ninja, who, by the way, can be followed on Twitter at Freedom Isn't Safe. Hey, Vlad, how's it going? It's going okay. So far, I've checked the balance in my hardware wallet. You haven't hacked it. I have not hacked it yet. However, be careful. I don't know that I'm so altruistic is it, that I wouldn't hack it given the right opportunity. Yeah, you don't have physical access yet because we're not in the same room. <laughs> yeah, so, so far all my hacks have been only physical access related. So I'm going to have to sort of broaden out my, uh, my scope of attacks I'm looking at here to, to get you. So how did you acquire this interest in hacking hardware wallets? <clears throat> well, I, I started out in Bitcoin uh, right at the end of 2013. Well, heard about Bitcoin right at the end of 2013 when it was making its run up to 1,000. And I was like, whoa, what's this thing? And so I, I started investigating it, and I was sort of hooked right away. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't a, a massive buyer then, so I'm not yet you know, super Bitcoin wealthy, but I did investigate sort of, you know, I had ran my own wallet. I ran an armory wallet and I investigated sort of, you know, Hey, how do I protect this key? And so I, you know, printing out my key and storing it and thinking about that. But so that was even pre, I think that was pre hardware wallet time. So when did the treasure come out? Like 2014, 15, something like that. So I think, I, I don't think I even heard about the Trezor right away. So it's probably not until like 2015 that I heard about it and started thinking, whoa, that's a really good idea. And it's actually really silly. I didn't uh, sort of think about that at all. Like I didn't, I didn't even think about, oh, this would be really good for a, a little embedded device because sort of working with embedded devices and security is actually sort of my job. <laughs> so it's sort of funny how I just didn't sort of put that together right off the bat. <clears throat> but yeah, I think the treasure was my sort of first interest. And I really also, it's interesting. I, I didn't really think about hacking these devices for a long time. Like, uh, so treasure was my first wallet. So I forgot when I got one, probably early 2017, I think is when I got my first treasure. And still, for some reason, I didn't think about attacking these devices. I just sort of a, a generic Bitcoin user. And I think it was probably sometime in 2018 was when I, you know, sort of, you know, when, when everything's going up, sort of in 2017, we're all, I'm just thinking about price and all that excitement. And I wasn't really thinking about how I could make money or help the community, shall we say. And then, yeah, sometime in probably 2018, you know, during the, the low times, shall we say, uh, is when I'm like, you know, I need to do something other than just sit here and stare at Blockfolio on my phone and, and shake my head. So <clears throat> I think that's when I started sort of uh, looking around at uh, what some of these devices did. Okay, sorry, I was muted for whatever reason. <laughs> so you started looking into the, the devices from a security expert's point of view. 
And how do you find them? Do you think that they are secure? Do you think that they are simplistic in their design? Is it an efficient way to store your keys? Yeah, what's really, so in your phrasing right there, you sort of give away the secret of everything here, the simplicity. And it's really just fundamentally the simplicity of the device, or not, not so much the simplicity of the device, but that the device isolates the complexity of the rest of the Bitcoin environment. So it, it isolates you from all the complexity going on in the computers and the networking and stuff, <clears throat> talking to the backend Bitcoin network and other nodes. And having this device that provides you know, this isolation and simplicity is the fundamental piece of security that these devices offer. So even, even if, I'll say this, maybe this isn't true in all cases, but even if some guy just made their own random hardware wallet in a, in a very simple way, it's probably more secure than keeping your keys on your computer. So in almost all cases, these wallets do a relatively good job at, at protecting keys. It's only when they get scrutinized very closely that we start finding issues. Now, some of these issues are, are very important, especially when wallets start being sold on scale. Because the attack isn't always just on a single wallet. If you can find some sort of software issue with a wallet, you can steal, well, depending on the type of attack, um, you can not only steal one individual's funds, you could steal many individual's funds on anybody that uses this wallet. So the level of security needs to be much higher because the value to the attacker is also very high. So when was the first time you discovered vulnerabilities in hardware wallets? And how did you acquire this taste for being an ethical hacker? <clears throat> so the first one I looked at, uh, or started looking at, shall I say, was the, the Trezor. Now, I, I never did uh, find anything uh, with the Trezor at the time. And I was only sort of half-heartedly looking because I just felt you know, the, the Trezor had just been around a relatively long time and it was, you know, well-researched. So I knew anything that was to be found would probably be somewhat difficult, but it was really fun to just sort of look at the simplicity of the architecture. You know, if, I don't know if anybody's, you know, taken a look at what the Trezor actually look like, looks like, but it's basically just one chip and a display. You know, there's other passive components around there, but it is just an incredibly simple device and sort of fun to, fun to start researching. But <clears throat> I knew I didn't have a lot of time to spend really digging in super deep. So I just sort of sat by just sort of keeping my eye on devices coming out. And then the, the cold card came out. And so I decided this was really my opportunity because one of the things about a wallet that really, or I guess any, any piece of uh, software or hardware trying to do security is the, the age of the device. <clears throat> you know, as devices age, you know, they, 
have more eyes and more people looking at them and more vulnerabilities are being fixed. And so your best opportunity to find sort of the, the low hanging fruit is on brand new devices. And so that was my strategy on the cold card. And additionally, the cold card <coughs> also, what really caught my eye too is it also used a security chip uh, that I had some familiarity with. And I had sort of previously been thinking about how I could use this chip. So it's, uh, so they call it, you know, it's a secure element that always people refer to it as. It's, uh, it was at the time a ATECC 508. Um, <clears throat> and that chip was really what caught my eye because when I was thinking about how could I design a wallet to use this device pr prior to knowing about the cold card or seeing it, there was a few problems I couldn't solve or I thought would be difficult. <clears throat> and so as soon as cold card came out, I'm like, well, I, I better take a look at how the cold card guys solve these problems. So I first started out, you know, I'm, I'm really cheap. You know, I got to say, got to save those Bitcoins, got to hodl those. So I started out by just looking at cold cards website. So I spent a couple hours just reading through their documentation and, and seeing how it worked. And a few things kept catching my eye there in their documentation. <clears throat> and then I'm like, well, better, better dive into the code and take a look. And what's really interesting is uh, I pulled up the code, and it probably only took about 30 minutes to identify the vulnerability that I ended up being able to exploit on that device. Really? So you were able to find the vulnerability just from the documentation? Yeah, well, the documentation, yeah, so the, the written documentation on their website sort of gave me some hints of what that, maybe it gave me some suspicions. And so once I had those suspicions, then I, I had some idea of where I should be looking in the code. And so, yeah, once, once it got to be looking at the code, it was really just sort of verifying, well, I'll take it back. There were a couple different things in the code than was explicit in the documentation, but uh, my, my uh, suspicions were correct in the areas of the code that I thought uh, might be vulnerable. And so I was just immediately able to open, open the project and, and uh, find what I was looking for. So what do you think about the cold card? It gets a lot of praise on social media. A lot of people <clears throat> talk about the PSBT partially signed Bitcoin, Bitcoin transactions, which allow you to never connect the device to an internet-connected computer, which is huge because you just sync with an SD card. And that's able to do many operations on device, which makes it more secure. But at the same time, I saw that a lot of people reported small vulnerabilities and bugs in it, and you're one of them. So what is your general impression? Does it live up to the hype? So the cold card guys did some, did some really good things. So I think they, they, have a, a, they had a good sort of architecture strategy. So it's sort of in how, how they designed the chip and some of the features they added in, um, I was really impressed with. So, you know, using the secure chip is uh, a very important feature. Um, which we can get into later, and it protects against a number of attacks that some of the other wallets have succumbed to. And then they also add a couple other subtle, you know, a few things they have in there I don't find as valuable as their 
sold. Um, for example, you know, the, the duress pen, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting, but if somebody, if somebody knows your, your cold card is actually a hardware wallet, they quite possible they're familiar with the architecture of it. And so they'll know these, these different types of pins in it. So I think the guy with the wrench can still uh, tell you, don't enter your dress pen, enter your, your real pen. Um, a few things like that, but I mean, it's, it's not, a, it's not a bad feature. It's a nice feature. And then there's a couple other good ones too. Like I, during pen entry, uh, they display sort of a unique identifier that's unique for that device in your pen um, halfway through, shall we say your pen entry. And, and that actually, that's a really good feature. It really helps, you know, a lot of my uh, attack minded thinking has to do with, you know, stealing somebody's device and not letting them know you stole it. So for, for example, attacks that take, and it's actually related to the attack on the cold card. So and we, we can get into that in a little bit more detail, but I'll just give the quick overview. So, so basically I had an attack on the cold card that allowed the brute forcing of the pin code, um, but it was really slow. Like, so you just had to use the GUI on the device to brute force it. So it'd take, you know, five, 10 seconds per guess. <clears throat> so it take a really long time. So if it takes, you know, four months to brute force somebody's pin, if somebody doesn't have their wallet, they're going to get a new wallet. Possibly, you know, if they realize it's stolen, they're going to move their funds. But one of my lines of thinking on how to make attacks that require theft um, more uh, effective is you don't let the person know you stole their wallet. So I steal your wallet and I do my slow or long attack. Maybe I ship the wallet to a lab and they do all sorts of stuff in order to try to extract information. But if you know your wallet's gone, you'll, you'll move your funds. So um, one thing I like to do in, in general in this thinking is you don't steal the wallet, you actually replace it. So I'll take your wallet, but I will replace it with a bricked version of your wallet, such that you don't know your wallet was stolen, you just think your wallet stopped working. <clears throat> and this can be effective for the cold card too, because like if you get your cold card one day and you plug it in and the screen just displays a bunch of garbage, you'll think, oh crap, you know, something happened to it. And you'll just go buy a new one and set up the new one, not realizing that somebody may have actually stolen your good one replaced it with a dummy and is busy brute forcing uh, your pin. <clears throat> so I guess that's one piece of advice for people. If your wallet ever stops working for some reason, um, it's probably a good idea to move your funds to a new seed, unless you have it stop working because you dropped it in the lake or something yourself and you know why it didn't stop working. Because that is one of the attack vectors I was thinking about to make these attacks <clears throat> more useful. But uh, one of the other things too, you know, you mentioned the PBST and the, <clears throat> the SD card. Uh, one of the, that's another feature that's a little bit overhyped. I mean, it, it's useful, but it's, it's not quite as valuable as some people think. I mean, it, there is value, but not quite as much. <clears throat> because air gaps, um, you're, you're, you're still plugging an SD card 
into your cold card. You know, so here, here's a trap. So people say, okay, so you can have, you can connect a wallet maybe with Bluetooth and your computer can blast, you know, the transaction information over Bluetooth, or you can connect your wallet with USB and now your computer can pass the transaction information over USB, or you can plug an SD card into your computer, copy the transactions onto it, <coughs> and plug that into your wallet. And it, the only difference is really that the connection between the computer isn't real time, but somebody can still give you a not a real SD card. So uh, again, this sort of falls back to a physical attack, but let, let's say, you know, I go to your house, you have a party at your house and I see your cold card. Now this isn't a known attack. It's just a concept. And I replace the S, an SD card you have in your house or an SD card near your cold card, or maybe you have it plugged in or whatever with a malicious one. And my SD card looks just like a real SD card, but I've actually replaced the firmware on the SD card. So the SD cards actually have little uh, chips in them that run software. It's not just pure hardware. There's chips that run software in those. So I can either, sometimes they're updatable, sometimes they're not, or I could make my own. And I can replace yours such that when you plug in that SD card into your cold card, that SD card might not correctly implement the protocol. And maybe I have found some sort of buffer overflow type of error if I incorrectly implement the SD protocol or maybe the FAT file system or in one of those stack layers on your MCU, I might be able to cause a vulnerability just through a malicious SD card. You know, so anything you plug into your wallets, you know, has the potential of exploiting that interface you're connecting with. Now, the, the one thing that uh, is useful still is the SD interface is much simpler than USB or Bluetooth. So it's, it's easier to not have made a mistake implementing that in software. So, <laughs> and then also, you know, it may be hard to corrupt the firmware or replace an SD card more so than corrupt a computer's USB stack to make it malicious. So there's some benefits there, but you know, air, air gap is a little oversold because it, it's, it's a gap, but you're still making a connection across that gap with the device. And it's all about evaluating the complexity of that connection, which is SD versus USB. <laughs> to really promote adversarial thinking and really think about scenarios where you're able to physically access and compromise hardware wallets. So the other big discovery that you have made, and I think it was this week that the article got published on the website of Shift Crypto, and it was about the Bitbox O2, right? And you were able to find some kind of vulnerability in it. Yeah, that's right. I, and what's funny is I, <laughs> I, I actually found basically, you know, a different method, but I found the exact same attack that I found on the cold card. So apparently... Uh, my adversarial thinking is very focused around just sort of one thing, apparently. But uh, yeah, so with the the Bitbox O2, <clears throat> again, my, my strategy for choosing it was exactly the same as my strategy for choosing the cold card, which is it's a new wallet. And so there's 
most likely going to be some low hanging fruit on it that I should be able to find something quick with. <clears throat> and so what I was able to do with the, the Bitbox 02, um, and I, maybe I should tell exactly what I did with the cold card too. I'll, 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 I'll talk about the Bitbox and I'll say exactly what happened with the cold card. But the cold card actually, there's some good, a good write-up. You know, uh, CoinKite did actually a good write-up of it. Um, so people can read that as well too. And, and I also have a write-up. But um, the Bitbox, uh, there wasn't uh, a significant write-up on it. So I, I think I'll go into some detail on that. <clears throat> uh, sorry for the, the cold here, Vlad. So uh, when I first got the Bitbox, uh, well, let's, let's see. How, to, how should I start with this? So I, again, my strategy was the same. So I saw, oh, hey, look, there's this new wallet. Just appeared on the market. You know, I better go start poking around and see what's going on with it. So... Also, the Bitbox uses a secure element uh, very similar to what the cold card did. So it now uses an ATECC 608. The cold card originally used a 5. They did upgrade to the 6 also. <clears throat> but um, So I thought I'd try to find the same type of vulnerability that I found in the cold card, which in the cold card what I found is uh, some of the information that was being exchanged between the cold card and the secure element wasn't being authenticated. And so what does that mean? It means that the, the MCU was just trusting some of the information it received from the cold card and in the case, or from the secure element on the cold card. And in the case of the cold card, that was a, a temp pin attempt counter. So the cold card writes um, an update. It says, hey, uh, secure element, increment the pin attempt counter. And <clears throat> then it, uh, it says, okay, that was a, a failed attempt. And so what I was able to do on the cold card was they didn't actually confirm the write. So I was able to actually block the write command and it just wouldn't increment the counter. And there's a and the thing is too is you can also read back the counter, but if you don't read it back in this complex way, that command can be spoofed as well. So I could I, you can you try to increment the counter, and then I can just you know return the when you read it back, I can return the original value of the counter, and then they wouldn't know um, a pin attempt had happened because they weren't able to increment it. <laughs> And so they ultimately were able to fix that by just authenticating that the write happened in a strong way using some cryptography. And so I was looking for uh, something very similar in the Bitbox because some of the commands to the chip are just plain text commands, well, plain, uh, uncryptographically verified commands. And so I thought I would be, and it's, it's really, with that chip, it's really easy to forget and do something like that. So I was looking for the same thing. So when I, when I pulled up the code and I started looking through it, uh, it actually all looked really good. Like uh, they were doing things right. You know, it was very professionally done. And so I started getting disappointed. I'm like, oh, darn it, my low-hanging fruit isn't there. But I kept focusing around the pin entry. And when I actually noticed this uh, relatively subtle thing, but it sort of stood out to me which was the, the logic for the pin entry. So 
when you get your Bitbox, you plug it in, it powers up, and it says, hey, enter, actually, it's a password on the Bitbox. So it says, hey, enter your password. <clears throat> and so one of the things they do in the code is they say it just like that. They say, okay, hey, enter your password. The user enters their password, clicks OK, and then the Bitbox uses that password, and it checks with the secure element to try to verify if that password uh, was correct. And if that password was not correct, it increments a failed attempt counter. And if the password was correct, it actually decrypts the seed that is stored in the Bitbox MCU. <clears throat> so actually, and what's interesting is in just that little bit of logic I just gave you right there, you can actually parse out what the attack is. If you're thinking about possible side channel attacks in microcontrollers. And what a side channel is in a microcontroller is just an alternative way outside of the normal function of a device that a person can extract information from the system. <clears throat> and it, it sounds really sort of uh, vague, but it's, it's actually quite easy. So one of the uh, important side channels in embedded devices, or all devices, is their power consumption. So how much power is the device consuming at any point? And what you find is <clears throat> every time the device does something, you know, different numbers of transistors within the device turn on. Like literally for every instruction in the code that runs, it can nearly uniquely be identified if you have enough precision on a power measurement in real time. <clears throat> so uh, what I was able to do, and it, this didn't even require that much precision, but so what I was able to do is because I knew I could sort of see what the chip was doing by just monitoring the power consumption, I noticed that the pin is tested before they mark it as failed. So when, um, uh, when the pin is successful, it does this AES decryption. And it is actually very easy to see the difference in the power consumption for uh, a trace, a power trace, where it does AES encryption and where it doesn't do it. And if, when you look at the power consumption, you'll see, I mean, everything looks absolutely identical without looking at an instruction by instruction level, just looking at it on a more of a macro scale. <clears throat> you can see exactly what the chip is doing. And so on the Bitbox, I'm able to determine that, hey, the Bitbox tested my password right here in the code and then if that was right, it should have done an AES decryption right here, which looks like this, which draws this amount of power. But I can see that it didn't do that, and so it draws this different amount of power. And then, so the final step is to reset the chip before it increments the counter. So I can see if the chip tested the password as valid or invalid before the counter is incremented, and then you just reset the system. And this allows you to... Uh, just like the uh, cold card, test an unlimited number of pins uh, because the device doesn't actually track um, or, it, or you prevent it from tracking 
uh, each attempt. Okay, so given your experience with hardware wallets and your understanding of security, if you are a newbie right now and you're just starting out, which hardware wallet would you purchase? Oh, that's a good one right off the bat. Um, so I think it's best to evaluate hardware wallets on a couple things. So the wallet being popular is actually a very good indicator to somebody that's not a security person that the wallet has a better level of security. Um, also a wallet that has been around for a long time, um, also is a good indication uh, that the security level is higher. Um, but, uh, oh yeah, and also wallets that have good bug bounty programs that are well advertised and good payouts as well, meaning they attract a lot of security researchers to investigate because they're paying a lot of money. So it's it pays, it worth everybody's time to try to find something. So that's sort of, I would say, uh, a general criteria. So I would highly advise against people buying uh, hardware wallets that are not, that are new, <laughs> at least for a while. And then also hardware wallets that uh, you haven't heard of or that not a lot of people have heard of. And those are probably the important criteria. And then once you have it sort of narrowed down to, you know, the top, you know, so you, you right here in, you know, in your, in your article, Vlad, you, you listed, and in this uh, podcast series, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, basically the five top wallets that I'm aware of and that I'm interested in. <laughs> and I think that's definitely a good place for anyone to start. Um, uh, personally, I actually use a, a Trezor, uh, 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 Model T. I actually just upgraded from my my Trezor One to that. And now it's sort of funny. People will be like, "Well, you know, you, that doesn't have the secure element that you like so much, and stuff like that." And it is actually uh, a security negative to that device to not have a secure element. And there are a number of attacks that are possible because of that. But um, in my case, I'm valuing. Uh, the screen size and ease of use from that perspective as being more important uh, than the secure element because in general, I don't actually take my hardware wallet out of my house and I actually only, I have, uh, I don't actually store uh, my funds on the hardware wallet most of the time. Usually everything's in cold storage and the hardware wallet is just sort of storing intermediate levels of funds. So in my case, yeah, the, the Trezor uh, Model T was the best one for me. I think my next episode is going to be with Slush of Trezor and Slush Pool. So yeah. I'm going to let him know that I had an interview <laughs> with a hardware wallet hacker and he said, you know, uh, maybe that it doesn't have a secure element, but if I were to choose just one hardware wallet, it would be the Trezor Model T. That, no, that doesn't give them an excuse not to add the secure element. I think that should be a design path for them. But, uh, but yeah, no, that, that was sort of my logic for valuing my choice there. I think sometimes 
the argument against the secure element is that not all the code in it is open sourced, which means that there needs to be some kind of trust that you put into the manufacturer, right? Yeah, so, and this is this is another good line of conversation to provide because people there's sort of there's different types of secure elements. So the uh, the one used in the Bitbox and the cold card, like I said, is that ATECC 508 or 608 um, from Microchip, and <clears throat> that device is a fixed function device. So meaning the it, ultimately there is a processor in there running code, but that code is programmed by the manufacturer and the wallet manufacturer, the chip manufacturer that is, and the wallet manufacturer has no ability to modify that code. They can just sort of put values in and perform sort of general operations. However, the ledger has a slightly different approach where you know I, I, their secure element is a secure MCU. So it's actually a Cortex-M0 processor, if anybody knows what that is, that has been hardened against lots of types of physical attacks. And so what that means is Ledger has the ability to write code to do arbitrary things on that device. Um, so <laughs> there's sort of this confusion between the different types of devices and, and then also what it means in all, in all situations. So at any time, a chip manufacturer can insert backdoors into any device. So some people say, oh, well, the, you know, the secure element, you know, it could have a backdoor in there. I don't, I don't know what it's doing. Well, the chip manufacturer could put a backdoor in the general purpose MCU you're using as well. Uh, you know, the, anything can be done in that silicon because it's just not something that's that's visible to you. So it, it's it's not so you know it's it's sort of a, a not the right argument when you argue it that the chip manufacturer could have put a backdoor in because they can put a backdoor in anything um, if they want to. <clears throat> so uh, the argument is more you know in, in the case of Ledger, you know there's sort of two trusted parties because the chip manufacturer has stuff they're doing in that chip that is more secret. And also Ledger has code running on that secure element that is uh, based on the rules by the chip manufacturer is required to be non-disclosed, their code that they're putting on there. <clears throat> so this creates a vulnerability where Ledger could have done something. Now, Ledger is actually, um, a very good company and do a ton of research and uh, they're not doing that, but it's very easy for them to potentially have missed something because less people are able to review what's going on inside that secure element. But uh, uh, was that clear, Vlad? I, I guess I make sure I'm making this clear is there's sort of two different styles and, and yeah, it's not, uh, yeah. Is that clear? Uh, I think that was pretty concise, and you made the point why sometimes using secure elements relies on a third party, and sometimes it's the manufacturer of the chip, and other times it's just the company which tries to arbitrarily 
inject some kind of code that may be benevolent and may strengthen the security, but at the same time, you can never be sure because there is no easy way to check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's really it. Yeah, you can't you can't check. But and then one also one more point about the the ledger approach is having a secure MCU also gives you some more flexibility. So here's sort of another angle on this whole thing. So <clears throat> uh, secure chips, um, like I said, they ultimately, they're running, you know, the, you know, the secure chips in the bit box and the cold card are ultimately running, you know, shall we say hard-coded manufacturer code. And, and then on the ledger, there's some hard-coded manufacturer code, but then there's also code by ledger. So if there's some uh, error in the manufacturer code on the ledger's secure element, ledger can actually release a software update and fix the issue. Where if there's some sort of manufacturer error on like a, a secure element in the cold card of Bitbox, uh, there's no ability for cold card or Bitbox to uh, band-aid uh, the problem. They have to, they're solely reliant on the, well, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, they're solely reliant on the manufacturer to provide the fix. So there, there's, there's pluses and minuses. And it, it really, if Ledger could somehow, you know, open up their code at some point through some mechanism, you know, that, that actually can be a superior solution as far as uh, secure, security goes. Interesting. And as far as I know, right now, Ledger are the market leaders and they sell the most units because they also seem to have the best records in terms of hacking, meaning that they didn't have many and they did not seem to be as severe, even though I, I think the people from wallet.hack, I, I think that's the name of their website and organization. The wallet fail? Wallet fail. Wallet fail. Oh yeah, that one. Yep. They try to emphasize on the fact that they installed a custom firmware on a ledger nano S. Yep. And they were able to play a game of snake. And I think that was a way of, for them to say, if we were able to do this as a modification of the firmware, just think about all the software we could inject to steal people's coins. Well, yeah, from Ledger was that they did not interact or hack the secure element, which is where supposedly or most likely the private keys are, are stored because they yeah. did not sweep any funds. Yeah, that's, cor that's correct. However, the attack from Wallet Fail can be extended uh, to steal people's money you know, relatively easily. So, <clears throat> so it, is, it is a significant attack. Um, and it's actually, it's a tricky one to fix too from the ledger perspective, but let's talk about that for a second. So um, being able to arbitrarily install firmware onto the, the general purpose microcontroller in the ledger, so not the secure one, but the general purpose, <coughs> is actually very critical because the general purpose element has access to the display and Oh, and make sure I'm right about this. I, I believe it has access to the display and buttons, but I, I guess I'm not 100% on the button, but for sure it has access to the display. Um, and, it's, 
and it's very critical because if I can, if I can, if you're, again, if I come to a party at your house, Vlad, I can, I can walk over to your ledger that you have sitting out and I can replace the firmware on it with malicious firmware. And now my malicious firmware won't run snake. My malicious firmware will look exactly like the factory firmware. And what's going to happen is when you enter your pin onto the ledger, I will just, I will now know your pin, right? So now, so let me put a couple caveats in here. I haven't researched closely into the ledger and I don't have one. So I may be missing a couple extra types of checks they do there. So double check uh, the details of what I'm saying here. But in general, you enter a pin. I don't have to know the pin. I just recorded it in my software. And now I can access the secure element and... <clears throat> And I can also display wrong information on the screen. So uh, you say, hey, I want to transfer money here or here. You know, you enter your PIN. I show the address you said on the screen, but I actually go out to the secure element. Well, yeah, maybe that's not quite right. Well, in, in, anyway, I could, I could, if nothing else, I could, uh, I could, uh, I could steal, steal your PIN and then at a later point, you know, gain access to your device and then actually have your PIN. And probably a few other ones there. I, I don't want to get too far down the road. Uh, I just haven't looked at that device closely enough. I want to make sure they don't want to disparage them when they're actually have a, a prevention for one of these mechanisms. I spoke to Trace Mayer a couple of weeks ago, and he declared himself a big critic and totally not a fan of dedicated Bitcoin devices. And it, it was mostly because he's very concerned with privacy and he believes that when you order something from Amazon, it's going to be on a permanent record that can be used against you. And when you purchase from, for example, the website of Trezor, you're going to be registered as a customer. And also, when you access the interfaces of these hardware wallets, I think their wallets are in SPV mode, so you connect to somebody else's full node in order to make your transactions. So you're trusting the company to be accountable and fair when it comes to software. I'm not aware at this point of any hardware wallet which has native software to allow you to connect to your full node as a user. But anyway, wait, I think only Bitbox02 does that. But moving on, the point of my argument is that Trace Mayer said that you should be buying general purpose hardware and use it for storing keys. And it's better to just get an old laptop, sweep it, and never connect it to the internet and have your private key stored on it than to buy a Bitcoin device that is going to associate you with Bitcoin and from whoever you buy it, they're going to know that you're into this. Yeah, I think it, it depends. Um, so I'll say in general, I don't agree with that for most people. Uh, there are people, you know, if you're in a country with a government that is uh, authoritarian or uh, uh, hostile to Bitcoin, the risk of penalty or seizure or harm to you from uh, letting anyone you know you potentially have some Bitcoin 
is probably high enough that using a a uh, a custom or a uh, what's the right word a software mechanism to store your funds that where you don't disclose uh, or dox yourself to the government <coughs> could be valuable, but I, I think for most people the the risks of losing your money or having your money stolen from you, pro stolen from you by, by a private party, uh, probably outweigh the risks of retaliation by a government. But I think that probably has to be evaluated in each case. Um, uh, would be my sort of thinking on that. Yeah, the idea is that if you're going to use a hardware wallet, it's possibly better for privacy reasons to just get a general purpose device. Or if you're technically minded, you can just download the schematics from the Trezor GitHub, or I think even Cold Card has released all the specifications so that you can build your own from parts. Yeah, yep, for sure, for sure. When you have the skill set to do that, yes, you absolutely can uh, can get a uh, a hardware wallet implemented yourself for sure. And I think you know Justin Justin Moon, right? He has a uh, has his university that uh, teaches you how to design your own hardware wallet, and and yeah, I think for for a, a certain people that that can be a valuable way to do it. But uh, most people. Um, like I, I said, I think I think the risk of loss through uh, theft and mistakes probably outweigh loss from doxing yourself to your government. Uh, it's not just about the government. Sometimes it's about third parties that may be interested in your transaction data and knowing how much Bitcoin you own and some very smart criminals who will... I think also Trace Mayer told me in that interview that if a hacker is able to extract all the information from the customer database of Trezor or Ledger, they will also be able to see addresses that they generated and transactions that they made unless they manage to connect the device to a full node. And that helps them identify holders who have most Bitcoins. And from there, they just hunt specifically the individual yeah so so for that angle i definitely so my statement i guess is focused on building your own hardware but i i definitely agree that running your own node and connecting your device to your own node um is important for uh numerous other reasons so yeah i 100 agree that running you know not connecting to trezor or ledger's backend server is you know is very important, and I guess for new new people, it's sort of hard to get that set up right away. Um, so I, I I can definitely understand people have problems there, but it, I think that's different though than the the problem of buying hardware uh, versus building your own hardware or just using a computer and software to do it. What do you think about software like Armory? or Electrum, or Wasabi, which is very good and open-sourced, and I guess it received a lot of peer review. And it's 
for free. You can just download it on a computer. You can run it on a computer that's not connected to the internet. And some people may regard even Bitcoin Core as a good replacement that is much more secure than other configurations. Possibly not as secure as a hardware wallet, but it's still some kind of security, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I actually, well, so it's, it's sort of tricky. You, <clears throat> in, in general, things on your PC are going to be less secure than things on your phone. The, the, so having a wallet and, you know, I'm, I'm not a complete expert in this area, but having a wallet on your phone, I would say, is probably generally safer than your PC in most cases. <clears throat> However, I, you know, I definitely, so I originally had, you know, when I first got in Bitcoin, I did have an armory wallet, um, but, uh, you know, since then I've, I've been using all Electrum and, and Wasabi and I <clears throat> generally, I don't just store like when I'm using Wasabi on my PC, I don't just store money there. It's just sort of for, transactional use to uh, mix coins and then move them somewhere else, <clears throat> whether that be cold storage or warm storage in a, in a hardware wallet. But um, yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think in general, I would prefer, you know, something like Samurai on your phone for larger amounts of money than I would I would store on my PC, my general purpose PC. Now, if you have a PC that's sort of not connected to the internet and is just your Bitcoin PC, uh, that probably could be better uh, perhaps than a phone if it's something very, very careful with. But probably for most normal users, the phone is probably the most secure environment if you can get a trusted wallet. I guess it depends on the phone because I think Androids have a lot of malware that you can get just by downloading some kind of obscure application or even by installing third-party software while connecting your phone to the computer with a USB cable. Or whereas I think Apple has better security in this regard. They might limit some features. Like I don't think there is any wallet. Wait, there is one, just green address or Blackstream green. green wallet. Blackstream green wallet. Yeah. It's the only one which has Tor on iOS they figured out some way to do it. But on iOS, it's very hard to implement something like Tor. It's very hard to do lots of stuff that on Android is just open and easy. Yeah, but, I, and I, I don't want to get too far out of my expertise, but <clears throat> I, I think a lot of the issues on Android are when you install applications that are not in the Google Play Store. Or, you know, when you, when you go outside of that ecosystem and it's a little bit easier to do that than on an Apple device, I think that's where you get in trouble. I think as long as you stay within sort of the Google Play Store ecosystem, uh, I think most of the, the things those applications can do to your phone uh, don't ultimately allow them to, 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 steal, your, uh, to steal your funds because Generally, those wall, even if they get access to storage, um, as long as you've used a decent passphrase for your wallet encryption, that should be 
uh, encrypted. So the only time when they would really have access is there somehow uh, some ability for them to attack your wallet while it's running and get into its sort of execution sandbox. But yeah, I, I don't want to get too far out of what I know. I'm probably just probably people will probably make fun of me because I don't know what I'm talking about here on the phone side. One of the questions that I've asked every guest that I've had in this season was about why should anyone use a hardware wallet? Why not just resort to a paper wallet or a brain wallet or try some other way of storing your keys? And believe me, I've heard about people just holding their seed phrase in a Nevernote document <laughs> under email on their notes application. And that's just insane. You should not do that. Or even sometimes they take a picture and keep it in their phone or some kind of screenshot when they create the wallet on a mobile wallet, they just take a screenshot of the words and say, oh, this is great. I can just copy this image and that's it. I don't have to grab a piece of paper and write down. And this isn't just about the security of your Bitcoins. This is about data security in general. Because when I look at my nephews, for example, they're about 10 years old and they have no understanding of security and they tend to just keep all their data on their tablets and laptops and think that is just their data. And they even upload to the cloud. They synchronize their devices without thinking about privacy and consequences and that can be easily abused, and we have no idea what's going to happen with this data at any point of our lives or after our lives. Yeah, I think it's it's a really <clears throat> hard lesson to just tell somebody because people don't realize how vulnerable and they are with different pieces of data that they share, whether it's Bitcoin keys or things you upload online. And it really takes sort of being uh, burned on the stove, as people say, before you learn you shouldn't touch the stove. So it's, it's, it, yeah, it's hard to just say you shouldn't do this enough to somebody until it's happened. But as far as uh, why should somebody use a, a hardware wallet for, for Bitcoin, it's actually, for, for me, I would say it's sort of a, a split use case. So, you know, it, I, you know, hold in cold storage. So every, everything I hold is cold storage, stamped on a piece of metal, um, and protected that way. So completely non-electronic. But, um, and then I have all my UTXOs divided up, you know, so it's not all sitting in one UTXO. And then occasionally, if I need to pull money from there for some reason or another, I will sort of use a hardware wallet at that point to interact with those funds um, on a, a temporary basis. So I just interact with them transactionally just to get them from that address and then perhaps put them into you know, a phone wallet or another hardware wallet that's my quote-unquote warm wallet address set. <clears throat> but if you plan on using your Bitcoin, uh, it can't be in cold storage. It can't be on a piece of paper. You ultimately, at some point, have to use it. Well, depending on how long, what your timescales are, at some point, at some point, everybody has to use it. But uh, uh, 
So the purpose of the hardware wallet is for in cases where you're going to use your Bitcoin to do something. Because putting, putting that money on your phone or on your PC, once it gets above a certain threshold, uh, becomes not safe. So for me, hardware wallets are for intermediate amounts of money. So not your bulk savings, but not your cash, but sort of intermediate amounts. So if you are doing, you know, if you're trading on an exchange, perhaps, <clears throat> and you need to move money in and out of that exchange um, relatively frequently, uh, it's a, a good chunk of change, but not everything. You know, it's probably really good to have that on a hardware wallet. But I definitely recommend, uh, you know, cold storage. Uh, however, you do got to be got to be careful with cold storage too that uh, that you do that properly and don't lose it. Um, probably similarly to a hardware wallet, I guess, or any backup. I actually, when I converted to cold storage, <laughs> I had a really hard time doing that factory reset on uh, on my Trezor to, <laughs> to erase it. I was just never sure, and then I had to try to re-enter the the seed again, just to double check. I didn't mess anything up when I was transferring it to the, uh, the cold storage, but, uh, yeah. Actually, that's something which is oftentimes overlooked as you don't really think about getting a backup and trying your seed phrase to see if you wrote it down correctly. Yeah, and the other thing that's really important too, sorry if I interrupt your train of thought there, is don't just try it on, like, so, this is actually a dangerous thing, but a, a safe thing. So, like, when I check my backup, um, I don't just check it on my Trezor. I also check it on another device, and just to make sure that it's generating the same uh, keychain uh, between the devices, um, so it's, you can get in situations where if you just always check on, on one device, uh, then <clears throat> you end up with some derivation pass that's not standard or some, you know, some sort of issue like that. And all of a sudden you're, you potentially could find your money again, but your money can become lost for a little while. And it's really scary. Oh, it is scary all the time. I actually, <laughs> I, I don't think even after years, you can, I don't think you can make Bitcoin transactions without being a bit paranoid and <laughs> double checking and feeling how your heart beats faster. And you're not sure if your setup is secure, if somebody can see what you're doing and you're basically in your head, you're reviewing the whole process. And yeah. uh, I think that's a part of giving up hard money. I imagine that our ancestors, when they were trading amounts of gold, they were in the middle of a similar process. Yeah. <laughs> I, you brought up something. I, I, when, I'm, when I'm doing sort of cash operations, like, or like small, you know, I'm sending $50 here or $100 here, or, you know, off my, off my phone to buy something or whatever. <clears throat> I don't think about it for a second, not nervous at all, totally, totally fine, not, that doesn't cause me any worries. But yeah, when I move my cold storage funds, if I want to take a chunk out of there and remix it or do something with that, I'm absolutely terrified. It's terrified. It's like the most stressful moments of my life. <laughs> sort of when you have a deeper look at some of these things, you realize how much can go wrong. 
Like there, there can be all sorts of, you know, when, when your hardware wallet signs your transaction or generates the outputs, there can be subtle things wrong just for some, you know, maybe there is some, uh, you know, some, some sort of just glitch on your device for some random reason can potentially corrupt an output or something like that. And you can send your coins into nowhere. You know, I mean, you can review code and see for double checking of things like that, but that's part of the reason why I have all my money divided up into a, a number of UTXOs. So <laughs> something weird like that happened, it's not just all gone, you know, it's just a chunk. Yeah, that, that's very good advice. What about multi-sig? Because we had this conversation before we started recording, and you said that it's kind of overrated and its importance is overstated in regards to the risk that is involved. Yeah, I think I think multi-sig for most users adds more complexity than it than it mitigates risk of other failures. So if you look at how do people lose coins, how do people lose money? So, uh, you know, let, let's say, so an argument for multi-sig in a hardware wallet would be, <clears throat> um, and this, this is actually potentially a, a good one, right? Let's say uh, the Trezor, um, so they use a microcontroller from ST, an STM32. Let's say it's discovered that ST is incorrectly, it did an incorrect implementation of the random number generator on the device, such that based on factory information, the way it's being seeded, uh, people can determine those random numbers. So maybe that's a little too much engineering babble, but uh, what that would mean would be that it could be potential, there could be a potential for some internal maybe ST employee with knowledge of some configurations on the random number generator and the way it's seated, that they could just determine deterministically random numbers that have been generated by all their devices, which would result in a remote person being able to just steal your Bitcoin right off the blockchain without ever having talked to your, without installing malware on your computer, without of touching your device or anything. They can just steal your money because that random number generator is generating private keys. Now, there's mitigations in there, right? So devices have other internal information they combine with the random number generator. And there's a whole bunch of other things happening that make that not super likely, but you know, it's sort of an angle. <clears throat> so to mitigate some catastrophic implementation thing at the hardware level like that, you can use two devices. So um, let's say the BitBox. So the BitBox uses a chip from a different manufacturer and it would be highly unlikely that both those would have the same issue. So if you use them in a multi-sig, you get rid of that issue where something like that could be wrong. So, okay, so we've got rid of some rare uh, potential issue, but now we've introduced something that is, it's not new, but it's, it's, it's sort of uncommon, which is multi-sig. So multi-sig is sort of a, a more infrequent use case, 
And so what does that mean based on what I've said before? Well, it's, it's just not tested as well. And additionally, depending on the multi-sig you do, now you have to keep track of more keys. So ultimately, you don't just want these in hardware wallets. You want backups. And people talk about, well, we keep one key here and one key there. Having each of those locations, <clears throat> you know, you now have to protect each of those locations. Now, there can be different multi-sigs like two of two or two of three. You can do things there, but it starts getting really complex. And the fact also that it's new is the, 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 the format of the script that's generating the multi-sig is also hasn't really been standardized. So if you don't keep track of how that was generated, you could be unable to claim your coins um, just because you can't uh, uh, identify how to claim them anymore. So there's, um, there's, there's lots of complexities introduced by multi-sig and for the problem, at least at this time, for the problem it fixes, I don't, I don't think they're, they're justified in most cases. Right. So let's think about some of the new hardware wallet devices. Is there any particular one that caught your attention and made you think that it might get huge in the future? Or are you still conservative and think it's still a good idea to just go for the most tested one, the one which follows the so-called Lindy effect? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the Lindy effect, as you referenced there, is probably the right way to go. I think right now, we're also too in the stage of experimentation, right? So there's, there's lots of things changing and different designs being tried. And, and it's hard to say if a new vendor will come on the market with some better uh, trade-offs between usability and form factor and stuff that will really, really sort of capture everything. But it, it's also if, if a, a, an older player sees a new guy comes on the, on the field with a, uh, a newer form factor that sort of is capturing the market, they can always just copy that and then rely on their previously generated uh, network effect to then capitalize on that investment by the, the new player. So I think, I, think the, I think the older guys in the, in the field are probably going to end up winning out, but uh, at least at this point in the evolution, I mean, ultimately companies get so big they can't, they can't be agile and change, but at this point, I think uh, some of the legacy players in the hardware wallets are going to be the ones that are, are going to be around in another 10 or 15 years. So it's always about the first mover advantage. Yeah, especially and being a little bit agile as a first mover, right? Some first movers run out of money or get hit with, uh, hit with something at the wrong time and get stomped out. But as, if they can make it through a few uh, downturns, um, and still have money to continue to invest in their product, they're probably, they're probably going to be around a long time. After I finished writing that article for Bitcoin Magazine, I got a lot of requests from other companies that just wanted me to review their hardware wallets and felt like they were left out. I think one of them was Cool Wallet. Mm -hmm. And one of them... What's their name? Elipal or Elipal. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's from China. Mm -hmm. And they produce devices that look like tablets. 
and they say they are just as air-gapped as the cold card. And they wanted to send me one to review it, and I, I told them, okay, you're going to send me a device, but just take into account the fact that I might not like it, and I may just, it, it might be bad press for you. <laughs> if you send it to me and I just slam it. And they said, anyway, I th we think you should have it and you should test it. And is it a good idea to give the benefit of the doubt to these manufacturers? Or should we just assume that they forked some kind of code parts from the Trezor because it's generally available and uh, it's probably safe to assume that every hardware wallet is more or less inspired and derives from the Trezor and maybe has taken some cues from other manufacturers and released a new product. Well, you know what? I, it, I think we're, so I don't know if this is totally consistent with what I said before. I, I just feel this way though. It, it, I think you muted yourself. You said, I, I think, and then you stopped. Still there, Vlad? Yeah, you, you're back. Oh, sorry. My uh, <clears throat> phone cut out there. Um, so I think uh, we're at a point in the evolution of the Bitcoin ecosystem and these products that it is, it is worthwhile giving the benefit of the doubt of people because there's just this rapid innovation where, where people are just change, tweaking this or tweaking that. Like even the, between the Trezor and the KeepKey, um, I'll have to concede I, didn't, I haven't used a, a KeepKey, but they just wanted to make a, a usability trade-off in you know, display size and things like that. And I think that's really a legit thing to experiment with. I mean, it's, it's, there are lots of attacks where the user is attacked because not enough information is displayed or the information isn't displayed in a way that's, that's intelligible or usable. So I think experimentation with displays and form factors and things like that is a good thing, even if it is just a treasure clone. <clears throat> but I still fall back on what I said before, though. I, even though those, devi those devices or strategies may be the right strategy, um, I still think the legacy guys end up just copying those strategies and if they're determined to be successful and then, uh, and then move forward with that. But I think it's interesting to evaluate all the different strategies people are, people are using just to expose, put that out there for, for everybody to know. Yeah, maybe it's a good idea to give the benefit of the doubt. And possibly I will invite some of them to talk and present their features. And one of the most popular questions that I ask whenever I have hardware wallet representatives is, can you say something nice about your competition? <laughs> something that you don't like about them? So far, it was mostly positive and they had struggles finding something negative and praised their competition and said, oh, they are doing such a great job. But, you know, we have this one extra feature which makes us worthy of your consideration. Because at the end of the day, it's just a matter of choosing which features you want to have out of the box. And if you want to just use Electrum 
and connect your full node, you, you can just buy the cheapest device, right? Right, yep. Does it make much of a difference if you buy a keep key for $30 and connect it to Electrum and your full node and never go for the intended manufacturer path? <clears throat> um, I, uh, well, yeah, no, I, th I think that's, that's the right, you know, in my, in my opinion, that would be the right way to use a keep key. Um, but uh, also, well, here, here, let me put this. So I, I do think one of the main use cases of a hardware wallet is potentially for trading on exchanges. So, you know, using, you know, Shapeshift with your keep key, actually, you know, you're already, you know, giving them your information by trading on their platform. Uh, so... Maybe it's less important to just keep your keep key tied to your Electrum personal server or Electrum and your own node. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess uh, I guess I, I, I don't know. I don't know which way to go on that. I was about to ask you to tell the difference between cold storage and hardware wallet because there seems to be a lot of confusion and you mentioned just before this that one of the use cases of a hardware wallet is to connect to exchanges and trade. Yeah, so I think uh, for me, you now maybe this differs for other people, is I, I think, you know, anytime you have a large amount of money that is truly your savings, that should be in cold storage. And cold storage means not an electronic device. Uh, it paper is fine. You can write things on a piece of paper, uh, put it in a safety deposit box. Um, I, I went and I stamped my seed phrases into a, a piece of titanium. And one of the things I looked at there too was sort of a, a usability type of thing. Like I, I got, uh, I, so I, I used uh, uh, a crypto tag. And so one of the things I liked about them was <clears throat> it was just very clear. Like I didn't, um, as far as like if somebody, if uh, my heirs in the future see this thing, there's lots of information on there to sort of tell you what's going on. And that's, you don't have, there's no chance for ambiguity in some of the information on there. Um, so that was one of the things I liked about that. And then, so now it's uh, preserved for, generations such that you know it can survive all sorts of, um, of issues and so that's where the bulk of my savings goes and then intermediate amounts of money are what I use hardware wallets for so I'll pull the cold storage out of its storage and enter that seed into a hardware wallet and then use that to uh, transact uh, whatever amount of money I want to move and then put the cold storage back in cold storage and then erase uh, the key from my, my hardware wallet. And that, that's sort of my use case, how I do stuff. Yeah, that, that's an interesting setup that you have there. But how would you advise somebody to begin securing their own Bitcoins and embracing financial sovereignty? And by the way, should they go for 
a Bitcoin-only hardware wallet, like is the case with the Trezor, the Bitbox, and the Cold Card. So I, I like to support uh, the Bitcoin-only hardware wallets just because by being Bitcoin-only, well, <laughs> there, there's some hybrids here, right? So a true Bitcoin-only hardware wallet like the Cold Card means they don't have to invest extra resources in supporting other stuff. And so it allows them to focus and spend more money and do it better uh, just supporting uh, the one coin that they support. <clears throat> However, there are some Bitcoin-only version, you know, like the Bitbox has a Bitcoin-only version of software and then another version that supports other coins. There's less value in that. Um, personally, when I, when I buy this stuff, I always just buy Bitcoin-only just to try to send signals to the manufacturers that that's what I'm interested in. But there's a little value in that is in that the code complexity is potentially reduced. Uh, but there's sort of, there's a lot of trade-offs there, right? Because now you have two versions of code. And if you don't maintain those two versions of code correctly, uh, having two versions can ultimately sort of introduce errors. Um, but, so it's a little tricky. So I do, I do buy Bitcoin only, but yeah, it's, it's best when it's, there's not an option. It is just Bitcoin, Bitcoin only. And you know where they're spending their money. Um, so what should okay? So a new person, what should they do? So <clears throat> what I tell my friends to do is <clears throat> actually I don't tell them to buy hardware wallets. <laughs> no, that, that's probably not good for the hardware wallet manufacturers. I just tell them I will let you use my hardware wallet because I I just use it ephemerally anyway. I just I, you know I just I wipe it and then put other stuff on it. I'm like create a seed, buy some Bitcoin write it on a piece of paper and then, and then wipe it out and then I'll just give, just give it back to me. <laughs> so that's normally what I tell people to do. However, I, I did have friends that were, you know, really into trading and stuff, a little shit, shit coin casino um, going on. So uh, they have hardware wallets and they've, uh, you know, moved their money in and out of the exchanges and that I sort of showed them what to do there. What do you think about the fact that you can use a YubiKey, which is more of a general purpose device for storing data, to also store your private keys? Is it a good idea to get one of these general purpose items that can also be used for email passwords and banking information and put, it, put in your private keys altogether or possibly just separate and have that only bit of information on the device? <clears throat> um, I'd have to look at exactly what the setup was, but in general, I would say no. I think it's uh, protecting Bitcoin seeds and is, is really hard. And I think <clears throat> you need a company that is just focused on doing that at least at this point. Uh, so I'd have, I'd have, YubiKey, I'd have to, I'd have to see exactly how, how they're protecting things and what their interface is like. But like I said, in general, I think you just need an incredible amount of focus in order to secure Bitcoin correctly. And, you know, like, you know, you've seen even all these companies that have security professionals 
their only job is to protect Bitcoin, all of these devices still ultimately have vulnerabilities. Out. And it's not to disparage these companies at all. It's just to demonstrate how hard it is to protect uh, information, especially when physical attacks are also part of the threat model. Yeah, it's always sensitive whenever it comes to data security. Mm -hmm. And I guess we can both agree that at some point Bitcoin will be huge, maybe in our lifetime, hopefully. <laughs> but it's very hard money, possibly the hardest that we have. But at the same time, it's just as hard to secure. And we need to develop some kind of technologies and popular means to allow individual sovereignty or else we will have a situation where like in Germany, people can deposit their Bitcoins in traditional banks. And that's considered to be a safe way where you also have this type of guarantee that if they get hacked, they're going to give you back the Bitcoins that you own. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's sort of an interesting. I, I mean, it's it was it's ultimately very similar to the down the reason for the downfall of gold as uh, as as cash, shall we say, right? Because gold is very good; it's very hard. You you can't fake gold, but it has <clears throat> some problems in that it's hard to verify just a gold boolean payment so I, if i just give you a pile of gold you don't know the purity you don't know the weight you have to weigh it you have to check the purity and that is really cumbersome for a lot of commerce so what the first step was you needed an authority to give you standard purities and weights and that's where governments got into the business of stamping their leader's face on a piece of gold and call it a coin and say, hey, this is a standard weight and purity of gold. Well, now the public has an easier way to transact because they don't have to worry about weighing and checking gold purity. Um, but then once government controlled that part of the money, it just kept uh, centralizing more and more until the government's held the gold and like, well, you don't need to carry around this heavy gold. You know, you hold it in the bank and we'll give you these, uh, these paper bailments that you can, uh, you can write you can hand around to transfer your gold and <clears throat> and it escalated from there until the situation we have right now. <laughs> so yeah, we don't want Bitcoin to go down that same path. And I, I, I think there's risk. It's, it, it is easy to use Bitcoin. There's just, I don't know. There, there's some risk. So, yeah, ultimately, I do believe that using it, you know, is going to be easier than it was to use gold. And so I'm hoping that everything doesn't centralize or at least a much lower amount of Bitcoin centralizes into places like exchanges and Bitcoin banks. Um, so we don't end up back in the same situation we're in now in 200 years. Yeah, right now when you get into Bitcoin, your first instinct is to download the Coinbase app 
or get on their website. I, I don't think there is a more popular option and that's how everybody begins. And yeah. unless you start to understand the purpose, why it was created and what it's supposed to do, you'll just look at the hacking record of Coinbase and see that it's pretty well performing. I don't think there was any major attack on it. It didn't end up like Mount Gox. The people in there are very competent and they take it very seriously. So if you just think about speculation and it's a speculative investment that you buy right now and possibly sell later, and you have no problem with a company knowing all of your transactions, maybe that it makes sense to stay on Coinbase. But if you're trying to hedge against government money and you think that ultimately fiat will fail and you want your funds to be sovereign and you want to be able to move it whenever you want, however you want, then it makes a lot of sense to hold it on a hardware wallet or any other form of cold storage and just hoard it, hoard it for 10 plus years and see what happens. Not financial advice, by the way, but <laughs> that's, that's right. what some of us do and that's what our expectations are. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I, when I got into Bitcoin, I did, I did exactly, you literally, and we didn't talk about this at a time. I don't think I did. I was like, exactly what I did <laughs> is what you listed. I, well, first of all, I, I I like found out about this all this crazy thing called Bitcoin. What is this? And I was immediately drawn to it. So I just sort of am not anti-government, but the sort of just libertarian mindset. And I just wouldn't want government controlling my money or anything. So I was instantly interested in this and I had sort of technical background. So I read the white paper, recognized this was pretty cool. This was right at the end of 2013. And yeah, the first time, first thing I did, I'm like, well, how do I get some of this to play with it? And I'm like, oh, okay. I found, I Googled this thing and I found, Coinbase. So I think I think Coinbase was like just open. I think it just started. But uh, so I got my Coinbase account. And I'm like, well, this is a really small one. I don't know if I trust these guys. What's the biggest? Let me see if I can find the biggest, most popular exchange. Oh, look, this exchange called Mt. Gox. This thing is the biggest, most popular Bitcoin exchange. But uh, I wasn't oblivious though. Like I just started research because I was really cautious at the time. So I started researching. I'm like, I don't trust any of these places yet. And there's all this stuff about people not being able to get their funds out and these delays, but then it looked like everybody ultimately was getting their money. <laughs> and this was just trial by fire. You know, people are like, well, I got to rebroadcast the transactions myself. And I had no idea what's going on. I'm like, I have no idea what that means <laughs> or anything. And so ultimately I'm like, well, whatever, I'm just gonna, we'll, we'll send, we'll send my, my picture to, to Mount Gawk and see what, see, see what happens. And uh, sure enough, so I got my Coinbase account set up, and then I got my Mt. Gox account set up, and then a few days later, Mt. Gox went bankrupt and then disappeared. <laughs> so luckily, it was before I put any money in, so, so I dodged a bullet on that one. Yeah, and we should not forget what happened there and what bad security can lead to. Because as far as I know, Mt. Gox was storing information about users and SQL databases and Excel <laughs> files, which is insane. It's very inconsiderate for people's privacy and for their holdings. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the whole reason. Yeah, it's 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 terrible. Like, and I, I sort of when I did it, I sort of felt that too. I'm like, oh, I just 
don't, I don't want this weird company having access to my bank account and my ID. You know, I just, I was just so hesitant about it. I, I just like, you know, just felt really uncomfortable, but I'm like, Oh, they're the biggest one though. So we'll just do it. Turned, <laughs> turned out. Probably shouldn't have so I wonder what it's like nowadays to KYC to Binance. When you first start, I didn't do it. I never signed up to Binance. I think the only exchange on which I did sign up in KYC is Bitstamp possibly, mm -hmm. but just think about it. There is this, company from China and they want you to give them all the information. And I know it's complicated with Binance that they're from China, but they have offices in Malta and they have all sorts of operations in various tax havens around the world. And possibly that's how they were able to operate and do the kind of stuff that they did, whatever it took them to become one of the top exchanges. Mm -hmm and list all sorts of shit coins and never be legally liable for all the pumps and dumps that happened. Yeah. And I, I think they reject by default U.S. customers. So you I cannot yeah. get burned. They're opening up a U.S. branch now. I didn't see if that had went through and was working or not. But Anyway, it, it seems so nice and friendly when you sign up and you have these interfaces which look a lot like what you see in your banking experience. But it's a lot more frightening. And yep. you have to be aware that these exchanges, sometimes they get hacked in their KYC databases, just like it happened with Binance. And they extract pictures and user information. And they threaten the exchanges and try to extort some Bitcoins out of them and say, unless you pay us this amount, we're going to publish all of this user information on the internet. And that's going to be bad reputation for it and bad press. And I have no idea how Binance and BitMEX got away with it because they, they both had similar attacks. With BitMEX, it was that one of the employees sent out an email where all of the email addresses of their blind copy he, he, he cc'd <laughs> yeah it's insane and they got away with it and people still use these platforms they still trade and they're going to argue oh but they did not lose any funds yeah they didn't but they docked their, their privacy yes yeah people don't people don't realize how like careful you have to be i mean it's, it's just crazy like you remember the uh, the Ashley Madison uh, data leak? You remember that? Oh one? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was so. <clears throat> I so I may have uh, inadvertently downloaded that database um, by accident, and it it was like really like I'm like I probably shouldn't be doing this type of thing because <laughs> I was finding people that I knew in there. Like I'm like okay I'm just gonna not tell anybody I did this anymore because I just worried it'd be start being too uncomfortable like I just can't even I can't even talk about this but it's like it's just scary what people will you know how, how much you're reliant on uh, companies to protect your privacy well in that, in that case it's uh, it's sort of required to KYC yourself because you're trying to meet other people but like with the banks and exchanges it's just you know, it's just ridiculous. The government's in trying to protect us and requiring all those rules ultimately cause us to lose all our privacy.
by forcing companies to protect all this sensitive data uh, that is, it's really just impossible to protect. I mean, even, so even the NSA, right, their, uh, their hacking tools got leaked. It's like, well, what the heck, how does that happen? It's like uh, supposed to be one of the most secure places ever. Or is that CIA? No, NSA, NSA hacking tools. Yeah, and it has become so intricate. I, I spoke to Bruce Fenton for Bitcoin Magazine, and he told me that he was selling stocks in the 90s, and he was able to call up customers and say, would you like to buy 100 IBM stocks? And they would say yes. And all they had to provide was a name and an address. <laughs> and they, they would send by mail some sort of invoice. And if the payment was made within one week, then the purchase was validated and they could yeah. go on with the transaction. But they did not have to ask for any kind of social security number, driver's license, ID, whatever. They, they did not have to ask for this. They just asked for a name and an address. And with this information, they were able to sell stocks and do financial operations. Yeah, gov governments would never allow anything like that nowadays. They need to track, they need to protect you. They need to track everything you do. Oh, I feel so protected every day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. My benevolent government protecting me from myself. When you're fearful, it just means that you're being protected. <laughs> well, what's funny is like, uh, well, I, maybe this isn't even true, but these protections can, can start out as benevolent. Like, like somebody that literally says, hey, we need to monitor this to protect these people. They actually might be thinking we need to monitor this to protect these people, but Ultimately, the, having that information and the ability to collect that information gives a future government uh, the path to uh, an authoritarian rule type of thing. I mean, it's, you know, even though the intent, you know, in the U.S. here, you know, it's people really fight for our, our gun rights. And <clears throat> a lot of the argument is, well, you know, people against uh, liberal gun rights. You know, you can, if the government, you know, because some of the argument is you need the guns to protect yourself from the government. And the counter is, uh, well, you, you know, you can't, you can't uh, fight tanks and helicopters with, uh, you know, with a regular civilian rifle. But it's, it's more the government having the ability to take those things. It indicates that it has the power to do many other things. And by, by protecting our rights such that we prevent the government from taking away some of these rights and abilities, it helps pre prevent sort of uh, slippery slope type of things in the future from the government taking more rights and other things in order to protect us. Yeah, it's difficult. And when you have Bitcoins in the mix, it's even more delicate. Any form of digital money, which is individual, you own the keys and whatever transaction you're making is both irreversible and written on a public ledger permanently. And if you think about it, it's all very risky. And it's very delicate with Bitcoin because you can see some features as design bugs or flaws that maybe will never get fixed. And it's frightening that if used by governments to 
make us, to push us, to declare our public keys and addresses that we're using is going to be a very effective surveillance system. With Chainalysis right now, they all already can track transactions. And in recent days, I even saw that they were able to see through coin joins in the case of massive amounts that were being mixed and sent to one address. And I, I think that the mistake that they made at some point was to reuse some addresses. And that's how they were able to track the funds. But anyway, it's frightening. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, the biggest vulnerability, you know, as we discussed sort of earlier, I, I, I think the technology ultimately will get such that through coin join and mechanisms along those lines, uh, we will end up with transactional privacy to a relatively good level. But one of the things that you that's really hard to fix in the short term is ownership privacy. So, you know, the government, you know, in the US, the government's going to, the government knows I own Bitcoin. And so at some point in the future, the government can come and say, you know, hey, you know, we're made this rule about Bitcoin. You have to do this, that, or this. And, and it's, it's sort of a, a scary, a scary path, but there, you know, it's, if you're buying on exchanges, there's, you know, you've, you declared you own it. I, I'm actually trying to switch. So I've, I've sort of, sort of stacked up now that I, I, I have the bulk of the coins I want. So I just sort of do regular buying stacking sats as everybody says, and I'm really working hard to switch to VISC. Um, so that, that's sort of my goal to at least uh, protect uh, some of my, my future uh, earnings in Bitcoin. So at least the government uh, can't precisely track how much I own. And I, I was actually, I, I known about this for a while. I was re- actually really surprised at how easy it was. Like it was just sort of install and it, it just worked. Did you, do you know about uh, this platter? Yeah, I spoke to one of their representatives and I was blown away when I figured out how smart their application can be and yeah. how they found a workaround in a land where you can't get away from KYC yeah. to the open source software that you download, run on your PC and make peer-to-peer transactions in the real sense. Now, one trick with it, though, right now is still I'm, I'm not fully not doxing myself because I'm still making electronic. The popular method is sort of this electronic bank transfer. And ultimately, you know the counterparty's name. They know your name. You know the counterparty's name. Um, and then there's a record in your bank account. You know, this money came from this person. So there's all sorts of various risks from that. And so I'm like, well, how do we do this more anonymously? I'm like, oh, cash deposit. So you, there's another way. You can just go to a bank, the, your counterparty's bank, and just deposit cash into their account. You just walk up to the counter and you just say, here's the account number. Here's the cash. But So I'm like, oh, this is way better. Let me look into this more. And it turns out like almost all major banks are starting to ban anonymous cash deposits. So I'm like, holy cow, they're really closing up all the loopholes. However, the good news is at least my, 
I'm, I'm a buyer typically not seller but at least my bank does allow a uh, relatively big bank does allow anonymous cash deposits still so we'll uh we'll see if they all shut them down but uh like wells fargo and bank of america supposedly at least i've read they've shut down counter anonymous counter deposits for cash so it's getting harder and harder if you just have to revert to peer-to-peer meetups at some point but the Having a broker in between is sort of nice because it just sort of alleviates a little bit of risk. I don't recall ever sending anonymous cash deposits. I know that you can do it here in Romania, but they ask you for a name. And I suppose you can go pseudonymous and just give out a fake name. But it depends on your luck because sometimes they ask for an ID Other mm-hmm. times they just look at you and say, okay, let me send this money. <laughs> just fill in this form and you're good to go. Yeah, for me, it's just you fill out the, so there's a deposit slip. You just fill out the name of the person on the account and the account number and the amount and the cash and you just hand it to them and they're like, thanks. So still have a tiny bit of privacy. So I feel like we have been talking for over two hours and I'm not sure how many people will get to this point. <laughs> Now we can say anything, Vlad, because nobody's listening anymore. Yeah, exactly. If you do listen up to this point, just send a tweet and say, look at me, I'm special or something like that. <laughs> Tag us. Just in case you haven't heard the first time when I mentioned it, the dash of lazy ninja on Twitter is freedom isn't safe. Just one word, no apostrophe, no nothing, no dashes. Freedom isn't safe. So you can follow him. He is very active nowadays. I don't think he's always been like this. But it's interesting that he gives away security tips. And he hacks hardware wallets and has experiences with BISC. That's a good reason to follow him. And do you have any last piece of advice or closing words for the listeners who will be tweeting at us, hopefully, if they get to this point? <laughs> uh nothing we probably haven't already said uh buy bitcoin keep it on a cold cold storage or a hardware wallet and uh you'll probably be pretty happy in 20 years okay so thank you very much mr lazy ninja i hope you get a greater following because you deserve it and i'll see you around thanks a lot Vad. we'll see ya let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020, and for more information, please check out 
lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage, and in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of this show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of this show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. and You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution.